0: Hello, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then rank them from
1: best to worst.
0: My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for joining us today. How are you doing this fine, fine evening?
1: Uh, you know, I'm pretty good. Uh, we had a pretty nice, slow-key day today. It's been a bit of a roller coaster of a weekend because my laptop's broke and I can't do any of my work until it gets fixed. And
0: I'm sure that's not a problem for someone who's a freelancer.
1: Yeah, the, yeah, <laughs> not being able to work at all won't be a problem for me at all.
0: Yeah. uh, Do you want a quick nap before we dive in?
1: I I think I'll just load up on some caffeine while we're watching the movie. Okay. All right.
0: What movie are we watching? Okay,
1: so we are watching The Cat and the Canary from 1927. It's a Universal Studios release, and it's uh, another one of these American dark old house horror comedy things that we've seen previously with The Bat and The Monster. But this one has me very intrigued. I've never seen this movie, but it's very influential because it's from Universal and the Universal films that came after. Film critic Carlos Claren called it the cornerstone of the Universal school of horror.
0: Whoa, The Bat. What studio is that? Oh,
1: uh, United Artists.
0: Okay, and then The Monster.
1: Metro-Goldwyn. So this is the first Universal turn at this spooky old house genre. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so the previous Universal films that we've seen were the King Bagot, Jekyll and Hyde, and uh, of course, uh, Phantom of the Opera.
0: But this is still considered the cornerstone.
1: Yeah, because Phantom of the Opera is almost like a, it has feet in a couple different worlds. It's it's also like (laughs) that romantic melodrama from Hunchback of Notre Dame and, and that sort of thing. This movie's very credited with, like, establishing the the mood and the feel of uh, those universal horror movies that are still yet to come. I mean, really the first of those is Dracula in 1931, but this is, like, your, your precursor.
0: I'm really curious to see this movie, then, because we saw a lot of those precursors to Dracula, especially in The Magician.
1: Yeah, and I would say The Monster as well. Yeah. Right? We've been seeing these sort of elements percolating, as it were, before the soup's ready, I guess. <laughs> so speaking of the ingredients of this film, <laughs> uh, it's it's based on a play, right?
0: It is. The other films that have been based on a play have also been based on novels?
1: Right, because the, the Bat was a Broadway play, but before that it was the novel The Circular Staircase.
0: Yeah, this one's just a straight play,
1: mm-hmm.
0: an original play. Uh, so it was written by John Willard in 1921, and it was first performed in 1922. And John Willard, he wrote this when he was 37, and, you know, it was kind of like the his one big hit. Okay. He was an actor before that, but as far as his uh, attempts at playwriting, he wrote quite a bit after this, but again, like, his only big hit was the Cat and the Canary.
1: So if this was nineteen twenty one written and performed nineteen twenty two, then this is like basically sort of like the monster was a play written to cash in on on the bat, because the bat had been nineteen twenty when the play came out.
0: The Cat and the Canary is pretty influential in its own right. Mm-hmm. It is like the first thing to do that trope of to get the inheritance, you have to stay in the spooky house.
1: Right, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And now that's just, like, a stock sitcom plot.
0: (laughs) Stock sitcom and stock Scooby-Doo. So the plot of the play is old Cyrus West is a rich eccentric who has always felt that his relatives have, quote, watched my wealth as if they were cats and I the canary.
1: Ah, that's the title.
0: Yes. (laughs) So, after he dies, 20 years after his death, uh, all of the relatives, uh, the six remaining relatives, one who still bears the West name, her name is Annabelle West. And she will be the recipient of all of the inheritance, unless proven insane. (laughs) Uh, And so they come back to this house. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you have to uh, stay through this uh, it's his old mansion, Uh uh-huh. um, but of course, having been left alone for 20 years, it's all spooky, and yeah, you have to stay there throughout the night, and throughout that, her relatives start to try to scare hers to, to try to get the money for themselves.
1: What a bunch of dicks.
0: Yeah. Now she's the canary, and they the cat.
1: I see what you did there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the Cat and the Canary premiered at National Theatre in um, February of 1922, and it closed... In December 1922, so almost a full year. Yeah. On Broadway, it ran 148 performances, but in total it was nearly 350. Very, very successful. For sure. Uh, It was revived in 1923 and again in 1937. John Willard's other longest-running play on Broadway was Fog in 1927, which only ran for 96 performances.
1: Right. So so nothing he did really even came close to no. being this successful. Well I mean with this he's sort of struck lucky by tapping into a trend though, right? Like I think so. And de- having I mean, enough
0: of like his own flavor to it. Sure. The Ken and the Canaries genre is considered melodrama, at least according to uh the International Broadway Database. Okay. As we've kind of talked about in previous episodes, I think specifically with the monster episode, melodrama was kind of their way to designate it as a horror comedy or horror thriller. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it it fits right in with the bat and the monster
1: plays. We've already seen this a few times in film, and all of those film examples came from plays, so like, there was certainly a, a trend of this.
0: yeah. He was also an actor. He was Mm -hmm. a bit more prolific as an actor. He actually starred in the play as Harry Blythe, which I assume is one of the relatives. Okay. Also starring in the play as Annabelle West was Florence Eldridge. She was only 21 when she starred in this. And she... When this movie would come out, actually, she would marry Frederick March. Oh. Who we will see in a few years ourselves.
1: Yeah, for sure. He's the star in the 1931 Jekyll and Hyde.
0: I feel like that one we have
1: to call Jekyll and Hyde. <laughs> we should really be calling all of them Jekyll and Hyde until we get to when that phonetic shift happens. But uh, <laughs> it's really hard to, like, retrain your brain to do that. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, the movie would come out in September of 1927. And it's directed by a, uh, a German director, Paul Lenny. Paul Lenny was a German Jew born in Stuttgart in 1885. He studied to be an avant-garde painter at the Berlin Academy of Fine Art. And then after getting out of school, he went into theatrical set design, which then led him into set design for film. Mm -hmm. After World War I, he became a director uh, and directed several films. Uh, But most importantly, in 1924, he directed Waxworks, which was written by Henrik Galeen. And uh, Waxworks was a fantasy anthology film with a German Expressionist visual style. It was set in a wax museum. The lead character has been hired to write pieces on three of the biggest exhibits at this wax museum. So those take the form of three different stories in the film, and the genres of these stories, one's comedic, one's like an adventure story, one's like a horror story. So the genre of the film's kind of all over the place. It sometimes gets counted as a horror film, but it's it's not really. Um, Probably
0: because of the German Expressionist look of it and the one story that's horror.
1: Yeah, exactly. Nevertheless, uh, Waxworks very much impressed Carl Lemley, the head of Universal Studios, uh, who we talked about in some depth in our Phantom of the Opera episode. Mm -hmm. Lemley really liked the way that the film blended expressionist horror visuals with humor and with playfulness, showing the ways that this visual style could be used with narrative genres other than horror. Lemley at the time was looking to adapt The Cat and the Canary, in order to compete with this sort of trend of films in this gothic horror comedy genre that we've already seen. And he felt that Lenny was essentially the secret weapon that he needed in order to compete with, say, the stylishness of Roland West doing The Bat. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, if he could bring, like, West, as we talked about in our episode on The Bat, had basically copied expressionist style for these American-style films... So, Lemley felt the way to do that one better is to, like, actually get a German Expressionist director over. What made him think that Lenny was his guy was that he could be comedic with it, which was the other thing that was important about this genre of film, that it was this horror comedy genre. But John Willard actually did not want to sell movie rights to the play, um, (laughs) because he felt that this would give away the story's surprise ending, and thus ruin the play's money-making value, because like, oh, why would I go see the play when it's on tour across America if it's already been in wide release as a movie? I know what's gonna happen.
0: That's really funny, because Mary Roberts Reinhart kind of was feeling the same way, like the reason why she wanted to adapt her novel into a play after the film version failed was because it would be a moneymaker with the twist.
1: Mm -hmm. But, you know, eventually Lemley convinced Willard, uh, the way that uh, many people are convinced to do things.
0: Throw money at them.
1: Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, So in the film version, the role of Annabelle West is played by Laura LaPlante, uh, who at the time was considered to be Universal's most popular actress. She was their biggest female draw from 1921 to 1930, and she always received top billing in whatever film she appeared in. Wow, She had appeared in over 50 films by the time she did Cat in the Canary, uh, so she was well-established. And this is actually really towards the end of her career. Her last major role will be in 1929, because her career would be killed by the Rise of Sound film. Famously, her last major role it was in a, uh, a film called Showboat, which was an early musical, where a lot of the dialogue sequences were still silent, but then they would do sound songs, because Showboat had been a Broadway musical, all of Laura LaPlante's singing in that film would be not her real voice.
0: Is she like the inspiration for Singing in the Rain?
1: Yes, very similar kind of story, absolutely. Powell Lenny worked very hard on the film to bring mood and atmosphere to it. Uh, He worked very closely to innovate the look of the film with its cinematographer, Gilbert Warrington, and also collaborated on the set design with the designer Charles Hall, which Makes sense, because that was where Lenny's background was in. The goal being to try and bring the extreme look of expressionism to American cinema. While filming, he would bang a gong on set in order to startle the actors during shots.
0: (laughs) Just, like, in the middle of scenes?
1: Well, like, if he needed them to, like, react to a sudden thing, right? He would just bang a gong to, like, shock them. (laughs) The film was a really big box office success. Uh, when it came out, and also did very well with critics. Much of the praise would end up going to Lenny's direction of the film. Uh, The New York Times felt that the film should actually be shown to new directors to show them how it's done.
0: Oh, nice. That's really cool.
1: Yeah. German critics, however, felt that Lenny had vulgarized the expressionist movement by adapting it to this American comedic plot format.
0: I can see where they're coming from because it's so different, right? Like, the tone shifts and everything are so different.
1: Absolutely. And, like, with the way that Expressionism was originally born out of this kind of psychological trauma, you know, and then to apply that to a kind of jokey American slapstick movie. Yeah. Um, But American critics responded to the German (laughs) critics by saying that Lenny had merely shed the baggage of a movement that had spiraled out of control. Ooh,
0: that's, uh, that's inaccurate at best.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's some good shade throwing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that seems a little, a little too haughty. Uh,
1: the film would be cited as an influence by later filmmakers, such as James Whale, Alfred Hitchcock, and William Castle. Uh, It would end up being remade in sound in 1930 by Rupert Julian as The Cat Creeps, but the sound version is actually lost. Oh. It was Universal's first sound film ever, uh, but it is no longer in existence. Uh, It would again be remade in 1939, this time played completely for laughs. This early silent version is, like we've already seen, a kind of half and half of horror and comedy. The 39 versions an outright comedy uh, starring Bob Hope. Oh boy. Yeah. Lenny would go on to direct uh, The Man Who Laughs for Universal in 1929, uh, which was an historical romantic melodrama starring Conrad Veidt, much in the style of Hunchback of Notre Dame or Phantom of the Opera. His last film would be 1929's The Last Warning, a mystery thriller. He died of a tooth infection That year, at the age of 44.
0: A tooth infection?
1: Yeah, he got sepsis, where, you know, you have an infection, and it just spreads to the rest of your body and kills you.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah. Before we watch this, can I go floss?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No. Oral oral health is important, Sarah.
0: It is, yeah. So how can folks watch along with us?
1: Well, Cat in the Canary got a very good restoration from Image Entertainment uh, a few years back. Uh, the same company that did the restoration of Phantom of the Opera that I recommended in that episode. Mm. That's the DVD version that I'll recommend. You'll also find a link to that version in our Scream Scene YouTube playlist where I've added it. And if you subscribe to Fandor, uh, they have it streaming on that service as well.
0: Great. Well, folks are going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back right after I floss.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See you on the other side, everybody. Okay, everyone, welcome back. We just finished watching The Cat and the Canary, and Sarah, I loved this movie. Yeah? Yeah, what did you think of it?
0: It was alright. I I definitely liked the bat more, but I can see why you like this movie a lot.
1: Yeah, I definitely preferred this to the bat, (laughs) so I think we're going to have an interesting discussion here if we come at opposite sides (laughs) to this uh, debate
0: well, before we do that, let's give a bit of a plot synopsis.
1: Sure. So Cyrus West is old and rich. And he's going to... And, well, debatably. <laughs> um, he doesn't trust any of his relatives because yada, 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 they're cats. Yada, 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 he's a canary. Be prepared for that metaphor to get tortured a few more times over the movie. So he says that they have to wait 20 years after his death before they can look at his will and just figure out who is going to get his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's worth saying that, like, right off the bat, like, this movie opens with some, like, amazing shots. Like, we start on a shot of Cyrus West's mansion, which is a model, but it's, like, very expressionist. You know, yeah. it's, it's the spooky old house. And then that dissolves so that we see Cyrus West in the same shot as the exterior shot of his mansion. Then the mansion dissolves so that its towers are copied by, like, these medical bottles Mm -hmm. that now surround him, saying that, like, no medicine was able to save him from his untimely death. And then eventually those dissolve out, and we see, like, actual cats. So, like, there's so much visual metaphor going on in the storytelling of these movies. There's a, a later scene where someone says that one of the characters is caged, and in that shot... We're watching them through the back of a chair so that there are bars around them and stuff. There's, there's a lot of stuff like that. So 20 years later, all of the remaining inheritors gather together at the mansion, which has been empty for 20 years, to hear the will read out by West's lawyer, Mr. Crosby.
0: And the castle has been empty for everyone except Mammy Pleasant, who has presumably lived there alone for 20 years.
1: Yeah, she's Cyrus's, like, top maid. And she is terrifying. Yeah, um, she's straight. She, she's fantastic. She's this like old woman with like this severe pulled back dark hair and like dark eye makeup who just glides through the backgrounds of scenes and pops up wherever <laughs> with like the best spooky evil facial expressions. It's maybe worth saying if you didn't watch the movie along with us. Uh, that Mammy Pleasant is uh, a white woman, because while mm. Mammy's sort of really like traditionally speaking, a term that you would use to refer to you know a, a nanny or a maid or something like that, and certainly Mammy Pleasant is a maid. she's the, the top housekeeper. I feel like in modern context it's mostly remembered as a word to refer to that same kind of servant, but specifically like a, a, a black housekeeper.
0: Definitely, that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, so, so Mammy Pleasant's just a creepy old white woman. And so she's there, and Mr. Crosby, the lawyer, shows up, and he pulls the the will out of the safe. Uh, but there's two envelopes. There's one for, here's the will, and there's another for, if the terms of the will don't get carried out, open this envelope. And that second envelope has been opened.
0: In the opening of the film, we see someone with like black gloves open up the safe.
1: In a POV shot.
0: Yeah, uh, moving camera. Uh, which is super, super cool, open up, and we see that they have read the letter. We don't know what's in the letter, but the way that the lawyer knows is because there's a moth in the safe, which doesn't make sense if it's supposed to have been locked up for 20 years.
1: Right, so he immediately suspects Mammy Pleasant of something, and she denies everything and says that she's. it's just been her and the ghost of Cyrus West yeah. in this house. People start showing up for the will reading, and uh, those people are all... Uh, West's remaining relatives. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, I know you prepared a little bit of a family tree, so do you want to go over that?
1: Yeah, it's a little confusing how all these people are related, so I thought this would help. So the first person to show up is Harry Blythe, and he's actually played by the same actor who played Ledoux in Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. And uh, he is Cyrus West's nephew by Cyrus West's sister. The next person to show up is Charlie Wilder, who's another nephew from another sister. Uh, so Charlie and Harry are first cousins. The next person to show up is Paul Jones. And Paul Jones is sort of the actors trying to do like a Harold Lloyd thing yeah. with Hit the Glasses. He's one of the two big comic relief characters in this film. And when he shows up, his car suffers an accident where, like, one of the tires blows out.
0: Well, he stops the car because a black cat runs out in front of the road.
1: Right, right. And he
0: has to stop and, you know, do, like, the spit, salt over the shoulder, whatever you're supposed to do to ward (laughs) off evil spirits.
1: Um, So he's kind of, his whole shtick is that he's, like, kind of dumb and a big coward. Yeah. But he's sweet. So he's another nephew from another sister. So that's three sisters of Cyrus West who are all dead, who all have sons who have shown up. Cyrus West has one living sister, Aunt Susan, and she's the other big comic relief character. She's kind of a, like, old spinster, catty woman who is also, like, a huge coward and is going to be, like, shrieking and yelping and running about. Yeah. Yeah. And then Susan's got a niece by an in-law of hers. So not directly related to Cyrus West. And that niece is Cecily Young, who's kind of a young woman with... eh, She's like a little bit shallow. She's always kind of priming her makeup. And she's also very cowardly. Mm -hmm. And then the final relative who shows up is Cyrus West's brother's daughter, Annabelle West. Uh, And she's played by Laura LaPlante and, uh, you know, is this gorgeous... Blonde, and it turns out that because Cyrus didn't trust anybody, he's left his money to the most distant relative who bears the last name West.
0: So Annabelle.
1: So Annabelle. But there's a weird condition, which is that because all of Cyrus's relatives thought he was crazy, a doctor has to come by that night to examine Annabelle to test her sanity and if she is found to be insane she doesn't get the money and instead the money will go to someone named in the second envelope the one that mr crosby found opened
0: so we know that someone will have it in for annabelle but we don't know who we know that whoever has it in is named in the envelope and so Crosby has annabelle alone and he's about to be like you know here's the setup you might be in danger And I will tell you who this person is, and as he's, like, about to say it, a creepy, clawed, hairy hand comes out and grabs him, and he doesn't get to say who it is. And uh, Annabelle, who is now alone in the room, starts freaking out, and no one believes her about him disappearing, even though clearly he has just disappeared.
1: Yeah, this hand comes out from behind, like, a trick bookcase. And pulls him behind the bookcase. This house is full of trap doors and secret passages. Hidden and compartments. Hidden compartments. And, like, this house is, like, the haunted house, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's just got all those classic elements that you expect to see in a haunted house.
0: Long hallways with tons of windows with their drapes blowing. hmm Like, I think that's, like, one of the first shots of the yeah. film. And that got the creep factor up for me.
1: Yeah. So the other thing that's happening is a guard from a sanitarium shows up because, of course, there's a lunatic on the loose tonight and he might be somewhere on the ground. So this guard's going to be wandering around trying to catch this lunatic. And on top of that, there's all this other stuff going on. So things get complicated pretty quickly yeah but the main thing is that whenever Annabelle says hey you know Crosby's gone missing or hey this or hey that all the other relatives kind of jump to oh you're crazy very quickly yeah except for Paul right Paul's who's supportive like, yeah let, let's search for
0: him and then is a coward about searching for him
1: yeah And I think, you know, the thing that, one of the things that I thought was effective about this movie is that as the tensions rise, you can see that Annabelle herself starts to doubt her sanity because everybody else is doubting it and such crazy things are happening that it's starting to get to her. Yeah. The next sort of big thing that occurs really is that while she's alone in her room, she finds the fabulous West diamonds and decides that a great idea would be to just wear them to bed. To keep
0: them safe, you know. Easier to keep them safe if they're on you.
1: I feel like it was easier to keep them safe in the hidden box in the secret compartment that she found them in, but (laughs) alright.
0: To each their own.
1: So the creepy clawed hairy hand reaches out from behind a secret compartment behind her bed and snatches them off her neck. Mm -hmm. And when she freaks out about that, everybody comes running. And they don't find the diamonds or the hand, but they do find a compartment where the body of the dead Mr. Crosby has been stuffed.
0: And as everyone's freaking out about that, they go into a different room and, like, they're trying to calm down and they try to call the police and the lines have been cut. Yeah. Then that's when they had the idea of, like, oh, wait, the envelope would still be in Crosby's pocket. Let's go take a look. But Crosby's body has disappeared.
1: Yes. And at this point, people start leaving. Harry says he's going to, since the lines are cut, he'll go get the police. But then Mammy Pleasant is like, no. You should stay here. I'll go get the police. And so they both run off. And then we see Charlie, like, see the two of them run off and is like, "Mm," and then he runs off. So it's just Annabelle, Susan, Cecily, and Paul alone in the house now. Basically all of our either, like, vulnerable characters or cowardly characters.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of in the film where I started to just kind of be like, oh boy, because I just got a little too convoluted for me, because everyone kind of stuck out on their own. Annabelle and Paul go to investigate Crosby's body, the body isn't there. Paul looks in the secret passageway and gets stuck in there. So then Annabelle's left alone. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Aunt Susan, for some reason, runs off scared. But Cicely and Annabelle don't know why she ran off, so they think she disappeared. And Susan's like run off to the milkman who was passing by because she was screaming help. And, and I mean, like, gets on the wagon to, like, start careening down the road to be like, get, it, get me out of here.
1: Yeah, I do question, like, this milk wagon coming around at, like, 2 in the morning. Yeah. But, whatever.
0: It, it just, everyone was doing their own thing, and they had to keep cutting between things to be like, hey, in case you forgot what Aunt Susan was doing, here she is still in the wagon. In case you forgot where Paul was, here's him just wandering the hallways again. Like, that's, that's when it really started to lose me.
1: Okay, I actually really liked that section of the film because I found (laughs) the the cross-cutting to be like building tension because you had all these people who had all been separated. So now they're all very vulnerable and we're cutting between them and uh, the cross-cutting really like amped up the tension between the moments, you know, even if when you cut back to Aunt Susan, say on the wagon, like there's nothing really going on with her, but by cutting back to her, it ramps up the suspense from whatever you last saw because you don't know what's going on with them anymore. Paul eventually finds himself into the fucking Phantom of the Opera dungeon <laughs> at the bottom of this mansion and gets attacked by who we can assume is the escaped lunatic, who looks like Mad Eye Mooney from Harry Potter, but with fangs, but with no tusks. Straight up, <laughs> they were tusks. And they get into a fist fight. Meanwhile, the doctor who's supposed to test Annabelle's sanity has finally shown up, yes. which, like, yes. The point in the night when everyone else who was here has presumably gone missing or died is the best point to show up to test her sanity. And this doctor, he looks exactly like Caligari. From much, Cab- yeah. Dr. Caligari. And knowing that the director of this film, Paolini, was, you know, a German expressionist director, like, it's not an accident. Like, you, it's pretty safe to say that this is, like, an intentional reference. Uh, and this doctor shows up, and he's real trustworthy looking. <laughs> you know, and he asks Annabelle, like, hey, why are you so nervous? Because by this point, like... Annabelle's a nice gal and she seems like she has a good head on her shoulders but like by this point even the most like reasonable person would be pretty shaken up right by the event of the night and so she tries to explain it to him and of course everything that she says to him just sounds like "Uh uh-huh yeah okay you're nuts like yeah it's this interview is not going well for her.
0: Yeah, the doctor is pretty skeptical until Cicely comes running in, saying, like, Aunt Susan's gone missing, and then the doctor's like, oh, someone else sharing these delusions, maybe there aren't delusions, and starts, like, talking with Cicely.
1: Yeah, corroborating evidence. So he decides he'll come back later. And then, you know, Paul and his fight with the lunatic, like... Bursts out onto the scene. Susan, off in the milk wagon, uh, ends up running into the police, which finally gets her and some motorcycle cops on the way back to the house to finally deal with this shit. They make it back to the house just as the fight with the lunatic is heating up. Paul knocks off the lunatic's, like, googly glass eye. Yeah. Like, like I'm not kidding when I say it's, it's Mad-Eye Mooney from the Harry Potter movies. And, you know, things reach a fever pitch. All our characters are all gathered together.
0: Oh, yeah, the guard who is looking for the lunatic Yeah, uh, is, like, by the window and tries to run off, but that's when Harry Blythe catches him or something. Yeah,
1: and the police. And the police catch the lunatic, and then we pull the mask off the lunatic, and it's... Charlie Wilder. Yes.
0: The nephew who was not handsome and not the bumbling fool.
1: Right, just the other one, the one that you were supposed to kind of forget about, really.
0: Yeah, the Um, handsome one being Harry Blythe, for the the record.
1: Yes, absolutely agreed. (laughs) Yeah, so then it's explained that there never was an escaped lunatic, that the guard is someone that Charlie paid off to deal with the caper, and that this whole thing's been an elaborate hoax to try and make Annabelle doubt her own sanity and get her proven insane so that Charlie could get the money.
0: Yeah. Charlie was the one named in the in the envelope. Yes. And then ugh, Annabelle and Paul get together even though they're cousins. They're yep. cousins, Ben.
1: You haven't read like a lot of uh, upper class Victorian literature, have you?
0: No, I have. It's not cool, guys. <laughs> You're cousins. Anyways, yeah. So ends up with Annabelle.
1: Everybody lives happily ever after, except for Charlie, who's arrested, and Mr. Crosby, who's dead.
0: So, I kind of mentioned where it was that I fell off with this film. I mean, the whole thing is a lot slower paced than The Bat, um, which I think works in, in its favor. But even with that slower pacing, I was definitely more feeling... Uh, Like, if I had to rank these two movies on a a list of movies Sarah likes, Mm -hmm. The Bat would be higher. But that's not what we're doing today. This is a good movie. This is a good horror movie. I just want to make it clear that, like, just because I'm biased towards The Bat doesn't mean I'll be holding that against it.
1: Well, you definitely liked The Bat a lot more than I did. I mean, I enjoyed The Bat. Yeah. But you loved it, and I feel like we're kind of switched on this movie. The thing that I, I really love about this movie is just how much it really pushes the spooky atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the, this movie's so effective in its visual storytelling in giving you that mood and feeling of dread and feeling of unease and creepiness. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things we talked about in the Bat episode uh, was I made an argument for the Bat being more thriller comedy than horror comedy. This movie, Cat and the Canary, is more horror than thriller.
0: Yeah, and even the comedic elements, they weren't as prominent as it is in the Bat. Like, it's here and there, it's peppered throughout, but I would totally agree that this is more of a suspenseful horror flick than it is a horror comedy, even.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, certainly the basic setup of, like, a ton of characters in a big old house with a mystery, like, antagonist who's going to get unmasked at the end. Like, that's all very similar to The Bat. Mm-hmm. But The Bat certainly feels like it's a comedy that then has these thriller or horror scenes where suddenly the tension ramps up. Cat and the Canary, for me, feels like it's a horror movie with a couple of comedic relief characters. Yeah. Which doesn't change the genre of a whole movie, right? Like
0: Totally. I think the other thing that should be mentioned, since we are, like, comparing the two... Mm-hmm. The Bat felt like, ah, finally, American cinema has caught up. This film, The Cat and the Canary, felt like it was actually pushing. Yes. With how it was made.
1: Yeah, my first note, and I hope you don't take any offense at this because I know you liked The Bat, but the first note I put down was, Paul Lenny makes Roland West look like a rank amateur.
0: Totally. West... Knew what he was doing when he was doing the bat. Hmm. But it was very much copying what had been done. He wasn't inventing anything. Right. This one, from like start to finish, you feel how inventive it is with like the dissolves that you already went over, the moving camera through different sets, uh, and doing the point of view shots. Everything like that. I think this is the first time we get a kind of lighting that we'll see again in Dracula mm. when Paul is under the bed, for mm-hmm. reasons I won't go into, and Susan looks underneath and sees his face. He has, like, the light on the eyes, and he's doing kind of a menacing look.
1: Right, and it's the the Dracula eyes thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure.
0: So this film is definitely better, maybe better made is the wrong choice of words, but it's more inventive in what it's trying to do, whereas West is a good filmmaker copying other people.
1: Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head with that. I mean, it feels like these two directors are both working in a similar type of story, and even with similar tools at their disposal because they're using these expressionist visual stylings. But West is...
0: West is the cat, and Lenny is the canary. Ha, ha,
1: ha, No, I, I was going to say that, like, West is, you know, using his tools to spice up the story that he has right we talked about that in the bad episode and Lenny is I think you've hit the nail on the head entirely he's inventing whole new tools this is certainly the first movie we've seen for the list that has so much camera movement Mm -hmm. Um, the camera is so free in the way that it wanders around the house and looks around and pokes this way and that way and it really gives you that sense of unease because you never know what it's gonna find with its gaze
0: It's almost like the camera is West's ghost. Sure. Like a whole other character.
1: Sure, yeah. Unchained camera, which was the name for this technique at the time.
0: Oh, neat. Um, That was
1: was what they called that style of camera uh, in the 20s, was unchained camera.
0: Okay, that makes Um, sense.
1: Was a technique developed initially by F.W. Murnau and Carl Freund, two guys whose work we've seen. In past entries on the list. They developed this technique for 1924's The Last Laugh, which is a drama film, uh, which is why we didn't watch it. Yeah. It's employed to such great effect in The Cat and the Canary, but it wouldn't... it's not the only thing, you know, there's... you've already mentioned the lighting. The set design is incredible. Yeah. One thing I really appreciated about Cat and the Canary over the bat, and it's weird (laughs) to say, is, you know, we see the outside of the house in Cat and the Canary, and it's an expressionist house. And, I mean, the sets are very expressionist, too. But I felt like I had a better sense of the layout of this house than the House and the Bat, which always just kind of felt like... A maze. A maze and a little bit fake. The House and the Bat felt like a series of set pieces for each scene that needed to take place in those rooms. But in Cat and the Canary, because some of the areas are familiar... There's this sense of like, oh shit, we're in this hallway again or like, oh this room or whatever. Yeah. That was more effective, in my opinion.
0: I mean, I think both are trying to use the sets to give a sense of dread or suspense. Yeah. With the bat, it's these things are so huge, I have no idea how these rooms connect. Where am I kind of the sense of confusion, which relates to the overall feeling of the, the characters in the film, like what's right. going on. Whereas here, it's kind of coming back and like that feeling of like, did I, did I actually see the skull in this bookcase here? Or was I just imagining it and passing by that place repeatedly and being like, yeah. why is that skull there? Yeah. So I, I think they're using sets for different purposes for the same effect.
1: Sure. Yeah, there's also really great like staging and mise-en-scene in this film, like Definitely. in terms of the blocking, in terms of framing and composition, the dissolves which we've discussed, the other effects just throughout this movie, uh, the title card effects.
0: Yeah, that was really neat.
1: My favorite is uh, when uh, the milk wagon driver is being explained the situation to him by Aunt Susan, and he goes, uh go ghosts And the like... Title card is written like that and is animated so that the letters are shaking. And it's like, there's a lot of other things like that in the film with just creative use of title cards. Yeah. This house feels like the haunted house Mm -hmm. that you see in every movie after this. Um, You know, I could feel a bit of uh, like House on Haunted Hill in this movie. Even like modern video games like uh, Layers of Fear uh, feels like this movie, or at least the houses feel (laughs) similar. You know, we've already talked about how this film hues a bit closer to horror than the bat did. And Mm -hmm. I think I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, we've highlighted all these stylistic elements, but narratively, I think it does as well because the, for me, like the sense of danger and helplessness Are heightened and that was something I I brought up in our our episode where we talked about the bat was that like one of the reasons I felt it was a thriller was because I felt the heroes were very capable and I also identified that you know the antagonist the bat was a home invader coming into their house so they had a little more power they outnumbered their antagonist uh, quite a bit and so they they felt like you know they were in danger but they could do it whereas like in this film our protagonists are like much less capable In the face of danger, you know, Annabelle has much more of a feeling of helplessness because even though she's in this house with these other people, she can't trust any of those other people. This isn't anybody's home. You know, no one's on home turf here. Uh, Nobody knows what's going on and everybody gets split up so you can't rely on anyone.
0: And I think the other reason why it feels like our characters are more vulnerable is the two cousins, Harry Blythe and Charlie Wilder, who seem like the two more capable people, yeah. keep going off to go, like, I'll go get the police and also scurry over here. Yeah. Uh, so they are the two that we definitely don't feel like we can trust. So we are left with a dunce, our main protagonist, vain lady and her crazed aunt.
1: You know, like, Annabelle is very, like, sympathetic, and I really like her, um, but certainly you feel she's in danger to a greater degree than, say, like, Miss Van Gorder from The Bat, who always just was like, oh, what? Like, people are dying all around me? Like, who gives a shit? I'm not even gonna stop knitting my (laughs) my thing. Like, I'm gonna be fine, because I'm, like, Miss Cornelia Van Gorder. Like, nothing can touch me.
0: I think a lot of that credit goes to the actress... Laura LaPlante, like, Mm. I think she did a really, really good job with emoting things. Like, you could very easily be like, oh, this movie's so campy. But, like, that's, a lot of that's just the style of silent film and also, like, the style of German expressionism, too. Like, the overacting that we see with Aunt Susan. But I think Laura LaPlante did a really amazing job.
1: She does a great job of, like, there's this uncertainty to the danger in this film. You don't know where it's coming from or when. Uh, And that gives it a certain height. And, you know, uh, because of that uncertainty, like, Annabelle's doubting her sanity and all these kind of things. And I think that focusing the film on her was a really good decision. You know, because in the Bat, like, who's really the focus? Like, the POV shifts around, right? Yeah. Depending on the needs of the plot in that moment so that you can suspect anyone of being the Bat. In this film, there's a focus of who knows who's trying to get Annabelle, but at least we know Annabelle's our lead. Mm -hmm. And so we're stuck with her through the film. And I think the the thing that I really like about LaPlante's performance is that, you know, she is that damsel in distress kind of character, but instead of feeling like she was tiring me out or feeling like her reactions were like, oh, come on, girl, like, what are you doing? Like, it it wasn't, I never had that feeling like you do when you watch, like, the dumb blonde in the slasher movie where you're like, oh, why are you going in there? The thing was that I sympathized with her. I wanted to see her come out all right. I wanted to see her be okay. And I found her reactions to things sympathetic because they felt like natural reactions. If you were in this situation, (laughs) you'd be having the reactions she is having.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about the fear a little bit. The fear in Cat in the Canary is very powerful. And I think it's because it's tied to the psychology of Annabelle.
1: Yeah, which is where that, you know... German expressionist yes. stuff
0: comes from. Yes, exactly. I mean, you could have surface-level fear. Surface-level sounds like the wrong turn of phrase to use, but the fear of, like, am I going crazy? Mm-hmm. But more so it's that fear of being preyed upon that's driving you to madness, and the fact that you're being preyed upon by your own family.
1: Yeah, that, that these people who you should be able to trust and rely upon are your greatest enemy, and that they're preying upon you, and that you don't know who to trust or where to go to.
0: Yeah, I think that's a a pretty effective fear. And a fear that I think, like, even if you aren't an eccentric millionaire, I think everyone can kind of relate to that feeling.
1: Yeah, let's think about this in the context of 1927. This is a film about a young woman who has... Fallen into a situation where she will have some wealth and therefore some privilege and therefore some power. And the way that her family can take that away from her is by causing there to be doubt about her sanity. Mm-hmm. That's like pretty on the nose, I would say, for like the way that a lot of independent women were dealt with in the early parts of the 20th century was, you know, you could kind of just get them committed, and then that took care of that.
0: So in a way, the fear of this movie is women's agency.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. To and be, like,
0: exceptionally broad about it.
1: If you... It depends on whose who's per, like, who's perspective you're seeing things from. But, Very like, true. from Annabelle's perspective, it's a fear of not being able to trust people because you are a person who no one will have your best interests at heart but you. Yeah. Like, you can't rely on anyone except for Paul, who's a freaking idiot, right? Like...
0: <laughs> but, I mean, even by the end, she ends up in that relationship with Paul, so she's mm-hmm. not going to be a powerful single lady. No,
1: no, no, because she she has to have... Getting with Paul is a smart move because it kind of solidifies her position. Yeah. She's not alone. If Now, if you want to come at her, you have to kind of come at the both of them. So it's it, it'll be harder in the future, and he's like dumb enough that he's not going to interfere with you too much. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm like <laughs> ascribing a bunch of motivations to Annabelle now that I think are probably a little bit out of character.
0: I think a little bit. What I was trying to get at is um, the film at the end, looking outside of Annabelle's point of view, mm-hmm. looking at the point of view of the other characters and of the society that you've kind of described here. The fear would be of women's agency, especially if she's single, Mm -hmm. by pairing her up with a dude at the end, there's less fear of that. I suppose, yeah. When a woman marries, like, a lot of that property and and money go to him, right? Like, a guy manages the finances, right? Sure, I mean,
1: like, the other thing is, like, in a family as rich as this one and with, like, a will that says explicitly written out as this one like it might be a condition like it might be a situation where like paul actually doesn't have any control of anything sort of similar to like the only example that's immediately coming to mind is queen elizabeth and prince philip Where (laughs) it's like, sorry dude like i know you married the queen but i didn't you you ain't getting shit but you see where i'm coming from yeah i see where you're coming from i guess the reason why i'm stressing annabelle's point of view is because i felt the film did a really good job of giving us annabelle's point of view Mm -hmm. and of having that be where our focus was You know, I don't know if the play The Cat and the Canary is as well written as the play The Bat in the sense that, like, it doesn't have the bat's cleverness in terms of, like, ah, I've set up this thing, and that's going to be important later on here. And, like, you know, the bat has, like, 50 different Chekhov's guns that all go (laughs) off in perfect synchronization near the end. And The Cat and the Canary is a little more simple. It doesn't have a lot of all those elements, and, um... It has to rely on a few other things to keep the excitement up. It, you know, doesn't have all the compounding complications of the bat. But I think that the film version's moodiness and technical skill outpace uh, what's going on in the bat.
0: Definitely. One can be more well written, while the other can be more well-filmed, if you know what I For mean. For
1: sure. Watching the movie, I was having such a good time, you know, seeing its inventiveness and its visual style. It made me really sad to to think about the, the fact that Paul Lenny, you know, would do Man Who Laughs the next year and then The Last Warning the year after that and then die. Because, you know, think about what if he had directed Dracula or Frankenstein or, you know, any of those classic horror movies from Universal to come.
0: Yeah. Kind of speaking about Universal movies to come, before we watched the film, you were mentioning how Cat in the Canary is kind of taken as the thing that starts the flavoring of all of the other Universal monster movies. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what you thought about that after seeing it, because I, I see why people see it that way. I think I disagree a bit.
1: I uh, I think that there's like certainly a lot of elements to what makes up what we consider the universal monster movie, and we've been seeing bits of pieces of it in a lot of films. Certainly, there was uh, the third act of The Magician, for example, where it's like, oh hey, here's where Frankenstein comes from. Watching Cat in the Canary, like the big door to the mansion with covered in <laughs> cobwebs, and you know these these hallways that are dark and sparse and just the atmosphere of the way things are lit. This is how you're supposed to light a horror film. (laughs) Like, you know, this is what a horror movie looks like. And I think that it's really not so much elements of plot or character, but elements of look that come to those universal horror movies later. You know, the camera was moving around, and I was thinking of some of the moving camera in Dracula. I was thinking about the scenes in Dracula's castle. There's a there's a bit early on in this movie where um when Aunt Susan and Cecily arrive at the house, uh their like taxi driver takes them a bit of the ways and then won't take them the whole way. <laughs> and I was joking like, yeah, like he's not gonna take you through the Borgle Pass to uh Castle Dracula, like, are you crazy? It's almost like,
0: sunset. Yeah, like
1: <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think I could see it. I could see it watching this film. Okay, uh, but but mostly from like a visual place.
0: Like I don't think *Cat in the Canary* deserves all of the credit for the look and feel of the rest of the Universal monster movies because yeah, we see a lot of those similar looks and a bit of the similar feels from the monster from the magician. Mm-hmm. But I think the feeling. Mm-hmm. I, I would give *Cat in the Canary* credit for the feeling of some of those universal monster movies.
1: Oh, for sure. Like this movie's got the comic relief and it's got the plot that's very similar to the bat and even to the monster. So it feels like it should be linked with those two other films. But those two films felt like, you know, kind of a gradual evolution, right? Like if the monster's point A, then the bat is point B. But Cat in the Canary doesn't feel like point C. It feels like point G. It feels like it's... Jumped way ahead, yeah, and the thing that like Lenny figured out in this movie, if I should be so bold, <laughs> is how to evoke a scary, creepy atmosphere through the visuals of your film alone, how the camera's moving, what the mm. mise en scène is, what the lighting is, rather than just story elements, you know of hey a big monster has jumped out at you or hey this guy is a vampire or hey this guy is taking over your brain or whatever right like this movie manages to creep you out just with a moving camera shot through a hallway and nothing in the hallway that is what shows the importance of cat in the canary is that it it, you're absolutely right that it figured out what a scary movie feels like rather than just what the plot elements are.
0: Yeah. Let's move into ranking.
1: Okay. Do you have like a range picked out for this? Because <laughs> I do, but I'm going to be really interested in seeing how different our ranges are.
0: I definitely feel like this should go above the bat. Okay.
1: Cool. 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 <laughs> I thought we were going to have a fight there, but all right. Cool. No, because cool, cool. Oh. like
0: like I said, like I, I enjoyed the bat more, but... This is a better made movie, um, and also a better made horror movie. Yeah. So, like, totally props to Counting the Canary, total props to Paul Lenny, like, yeah, we're good there. I was even thinking above Genuina, Mm -hmm. partly because Genuina is such a mess, Mm -hmm. and this movie has, like, female lead, has those fears of female agency a little bit, Um, hits similar notes, but this movie's better made.
1: So what's your what's the highest you would put it?
0: Well, I was definitely, like, thinking about where it compares with the 1913 student of Prague. Okay. And I wasn't even sure about Orlach's Hand, because they both have that feeling of descent into madness. I think Orlach's Hand does that better.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, so that's kind of the range. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm kind so of stuck, but I'm so curious what you have to say.
1: Okay, so your ceiling is maybe above... Student of Prague below Orlach's hand. And your floor is below Genuina above the bat. That's about your range then. Sure. Cool. My range, the lowest I would put it, is above Student of Prague below... Yeah, 1913. Above the 1913 Student of Prague below Orlach's hand. That's the lowest I would put it. Okay. And the highest I would put it is... Above Phantom of the Opera, below Nosferatu.
0: Above Phantom of the Opera.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's a range, right? That's the highest I would put it. Why? That's uh, the highest I could be talked into putting it.
0: Phantom of the Opera is your baby. <laughs> I, I'm so surprised it would go above Phantom
1: for you. Because Phantom, as I said, like this is I could be talked into this. This isn't necessarily where I would put it, but this is the highest I would could be talked into putting it. So my, my thinking on that was basically just that, like, Phantom has so many elements going into it. It's got the romance and the melodrama and the theatricality and the action-adventure cliffhanger serial nature of Phantom. And, like, Phantom's got a lot of stuff going on. It's certainly a horror film, but it's a horror film with a lot of other elements. Cat and the Canary... It's like, no, this is a horror film. This is what a haunted house is like. This is what spooky things in the night are like. Like, if you asked me which movie felt more like Halloween, it would be Cat in the Canary. So that's why. I just feel like Cat in the Canary might not be... Well, no, I was about to say Cat in the Canary might not be a superior film, but it might be. It's got a better director. Like, Paul (laughs) Lenny's doing more interesting things directorially. Family because opera it has
0: one director rather yes. than several. Yes,
1: and family opera has the higher budget and is putting more cool stuff on the screen. But like *Captain Carrion might be better made and it might be better as a horror film and it might be a little bit more on point with what it's trying to do.
0: So what about?
1: That's the that's as high as I would put it.
0: So why why would you put it above the 1926 Student of Prague with Conrad Veit?
1: Uh, I guess because like the 1926 Student of Prague still has like. Stuff that isn't quite horror, it slowly amps up the horror, right? Where it takes place in, like, a floofy, upper-class kind of world of costume drama for a while, and then develops into horror. Whereas, like, Cat in the Canary is, like, the first shot is, like, a spooky dark house, and then it's, like, crazy POV shots of gloved hands going around, like, a dark, spooky mansion. <laughs> and, like, like Cat in the Canary is, like, no. This is what we're doing, so I think that would be that would be why. But again, like that's that's a range.
0: I don't know about putting it above Phantom. Okay. But I would go with putting it above the nineteen twenty six Student of Prague. Okay. You talked me into that.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that like this film just it, there's a lot of great stuff. The cast is really good, and and all these things, and the, and the story's good. And we've talked about those elements. But like, if I had to say like what makes me want to rank cat in the canary so high it's paul lenny i can watch this film and go like yeah this is a director who knows what he's doing and the shot use in this film and the just the use of film as a medium you don't watch this movie and think oh i'm watching a play you know what i mean like like cat the canary is a play but you watch this movie you never think to yourself like oh this is something that i could have seen on the stage And it has so much production value because of that, and I just think that like it it even blows the technical aspects of *Student of Prague* out of the water. Like *Student of Prague* was well made, but like *Cat in the Canary* is like it's just so good in terms of how it's made. But like it doesn't quite have the story elements it needs to get it above like Nosferatu, Caligari, Phantom Carriage. Like it can't push that far you know, all the way. Okay, so you won't you won't put it above Phantom, which is fine. I didn't necessarily say I wanted <laughs> it to put it above Phantom. I just said I could be talked into it if you wanted to put it that high, but you don't want to put it that high.
0: I think it's because, like, that film does such amazing things with the use of color and, like, everything being a spectacle and how that ties in with the horror and the theme. And, like, I- I'm also giving Phantom a lot of credit with how... It's been cobbled together through different mm. things and is still so good, both as a movie and as like a horror movie. Sure. So I think, I think that's why it doesn't quite overwhelm Phantom, but I will put it above Student Prague 1926.
1: Okay, well then that's where it's going. So coming into the list, at number five is The Cat and the Canary from 1927, directed by Paul Lenny. Pretty good spot to enter the list at.
0: So if you would like to see this list, you can find it at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You can see the playlist of the films there as well. If you would like to contest this standing, or uh, if you have a suggestion for us, you can submit that through our ask box on Tumblr, or you can email your appeals to screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to contact us through Twitter at underscore screen scene. And you can find the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. It would be great if you could subscribe and give us a review or a comment. That's how other people can find the podcast. So it would be great if you could do that for us. What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Next week we've got a treat. It's another American film from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, directed by Todd Browning. And this is our first Todd Browning film we'll be watching on the list. And it stars Lon Chaney, uh, and it also stars a very young Joan Crawford. It is The Unknown from 1927.
0: Episode 20, The Mm -hmm. Unknown.
1: Yep. Sweet. So we will see you next week for that, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.